Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. News, views, and counter-apologetics for people who won't just take things on faith. I'm Jeremy. With me, as always, is David Fletcher. Hey. And Luke Galen. Hi. Well, we're going to have a interview today with Edward Tabash that's going to take up most of our time. But first, we wanted to start off with a little bit of news from the Christian Front. We have a report from Barna.org. Luke, do you want to explain to us who the Barna folks are? In case you didn't know, he's our resident professor of psychology here. He knows and, stuff. Uh, yeah, and he might be able to inform us on some of this. So The Barna Group, or George Barna is the founder, is a uh, Christian polling uh, group that essentially takes polling data uh, on various topics like, uh, you know, people, how many people believe this or that concept or are doing this or that behavior. And then they synthesize the data and publicize it, uh, often with, obviously, a Christian spin. We need to do more of this area or here's what's happening in the country. But do they follow decent methods, do you think, for their actual studies? Their methodology is, is, is sound as far as, I, as as I've heard. They don't get tremendously sophisticated with the data, cross-referencing this and that, yeah. uh, which would be even more interesting. But yes, they're, they're, their data is presumably accurate. Okay. So they're the, the Christian Gallup. Ex- exactly. All right. So tell us what Barna is throwing at us this particular week. Well, according to Barna, a new study conducted among 16 to 29-year-olds shows that a new generation is more skeptical of and resistant to Christianity than, than were people of the same age just a decade ago. Now, I, I'm actually in this group, this 16 to 29-year-olds, and I say, finally, finally, my generation has done something right. Uh, after all of the mistakes we've made, we've got this one in the bag. It shows that, a, that amongst 16 to 29-year-olds, there is a greater degree of, of criticism towards Christianity, especially amongst uh, evangelical sects. So we're really making progress on, on that end, and apparently it's all those uh, liberal educators these days who are corrupting our youth and taking God away from them, and I say bravo, <laughs> liberal educators. Actually, one of the things, though, that, uh, that Barna did show is that maybe we can't take as much credit for some of these things as the Christians themselves can. Uh, some of the categories that they were looking at, for example, was uh, they these were some of the indicators that they used to try to judge the perception of Christianity amongst the population. Some of the common perceptions they would uh, say is that uh, 87% agreed. I believe these are of non-Christian uh, 16 to 29-year-olds uh, believe that uh, 87% agreed with the statement that Christianity is judgmental. 85% agreed that it was hypocritical, old-fashioned, got 78%. Too involved in politics, got 75%. Nice. And what they were noticing, though, is a lot of these figures aren't too different from what actual born-again Christian kids believe too. This is from David Kinneman, who uh, is a 12-year veteran of the Barna team. 
Going into this three-year project, I assumed that most people's perceptions were generally soft, based on misinformation, and would gradually morph into more traditional views. But then, as we probed why young people had come to such conclusions, I was surprised how much their perceptions were rooted in specific stories and personal interactions with Christians and in churches. When they labeled Christians as judgmental, this was not merely spiritual defensiveness. It was frequently the result of truly unchristian in quotations experiences. We discovered that the descriptions that young people offered of Christianity were more thoughtful, nuanced, and experiential than we expected. And they relate this to some of their findings that even a lot of these non-Christian students have had experience going into churches. They have friends who are Christians. They've been invited into local youth groups. So I, I guess kudos to Barna on being honest about how these are not just stereotypes. They seem to be borne out by people's experience. Right, and it's it's showing that people who are educated in Christianity,、uh, people who know what they're talking about, are still turning away from it. So we can no longer use that excuse of, "Well, you're not Christian. You haven't heard the good news yet." I think it's Judith Hayes, the happy heretic, who talks about how、um, when she was a young Christian, she decided to read the entire Bible so that she could better understand her faith, and that's what made her an atheist. And I think. The, this、Julia、studies、Sweeney、like this too, and, absolutely.、Yeah. It's studying the Bible, and、uh, I myself had a Christian school education all my life, and that has prepared me to be an atheist、uh, better than anything else could have. Oh yeah, yeah. Whatever we're doing as a free-thinking skeptical movement,、uh, what this podcast represents, the effort we do to try to combat dogma and superstition and religious intolerance. Anything we can contribute to that struggle is just a drop in the bucket to what, <laughs> what they what they are doing, what many fundamentalists are doing themselves. They're their own worst enemy. And I think things like the、um, intelligent design movement are helping a lot. Oh yeah, a, a, amongst students because because us young folk can see how raving and nonsensical it is to demand that science not be taught in science classrooms. And as as we've discussed before here,、uh, especially amongst younger people, there's growing acceptance of homosexuals, and with that, I think has to or often entails growing non-acceptance of religious dogma. These things also go in shifts and in cycles over history. So you have. Of probably a lot of the data of people moving back from religion is a flame out of the religious rights. You know, the pendulum is, has peaked and is swinging the other way. When you have a group that's in power for so long, they take it as far as it can go, and people have seen what happens when you have you know a theocracy running things, and now they're kind of、uh, there's an erosion of that.、Mm -hmm. Well, I guess this is the fun side of the pendulum swing. Then, right? <laughs> I hope、uh, I hope there's an overall trend in one direction, though.、So. That the 2020s will be like the 60s, in the way that <laughs>、yeah, the old were like the 50s. <laughs> oh, which means by by the time I'm getting up there, it's gonna swing back. Yeah, I'm gonna well, die an upset, depressed man. Related to this article, I, I wanted to bring up Mitch Albom's、uh, one of his more recent commentaries.、Uh, he wrote a piece for、uh, the. Detroit Free Press is, is the paper he writes for it. But he wrote a piece about this school shooting that happened in Cleveland, where a student went into the school, shot, I believe, four other people, didn't kill any of them, luckily, but then killed himself.、Uh, 
Um, and Mitch Album wrote this piece explaining what's behind the, the bullet of a school shooter. And he cited such original ideas as Marilyn Manson music and video games as being a cause for school violence. He quoted this statistic about the uh, decrease in religious faith amongst young people and in the country in general. The suggestion is that loss of religious faith as a whole in the country is leading to more things like school shootings. Now, to his credit, the shooter was apparently self-identified as an atheist, but I doubt very much that he was a humanist, um, (laughs) which is an important distinction, I think. But this kind of bigoted suggestion that non-religious belief or lack of religious belief leads to school violence has caused quite a stir amongst the uh, uh, non-religious community, and Mitch Album is is taking a bit of heat, not as much as I'd like him to. Well, maybe Mitch should pay attention to this Barna study because it appears that why young people are rejecting or have a bad impression of Christianity are all based on moral assessments of how Christians behave. Right. And it's interesting that Barna, although I think they were actually very self-critical and very willing to be challenged by this data, so I want to give them credit for that. But I think it's interesting that they never really pointed out that association in their analysis of the data, getting the idea that maybe what is spurring the growing lack of belief Mm-hmm. is not a decline or a backslide into immorality. It's actually prompted by people's moral intuitions, by their moral feelings. Sure. They're being rejected because people feel that their ethics are superior to the ethics that are presented to and them I'm by the average Christian. I'm fairly certain the greatest proportion of gun crime in the United States is probably uh, done on the part of Christians, not atheists. In red states. And, um, uh, yes, visit Texas to... Your local yeah. gun shop, and then uh, and then they um, own more guns than us too, though. <laughs> right. Well, yes, you have to adjust for that. And then and then I'm fairly sure that Sweden, uh, one of the atheist, most atheistic countries in the world, has a fraction of the crime rate that we do with as far as gun violence. So, I'm not aware of any studies that show becoming a, losing your faith leads you to take a trip to the gun store to stock up. Right, and unfortunately, we don't have good statistics about the prison population because um, they've. For the last, what is it, 30 or 50 years, they've not released information about... Oh, uh, yeah, um, their religious program. Yeah, Tom Flynn uh, uh, has has written and spoken about this. Um, so we don't have statistics, but I don't know that it would be a stretch looking at the population as a whole and then education levels. Um, all the statistics suggest that... Um, violent criminals are much more likely to be uh, religious. And not that that's their motivation for violent crime, but it's not preventing it. So Mitch right. Album is, is off base in suggesting that That's important to get. People, you know, when yes. you look at those correlations, the conclusion is not religious people are all, you know, inherently violent or evil people as, as much to just show that, look, this is a major criticism of your particular worldview. If you think religiosity correlates with moral behavior, you're doing so in contradiction right. to the evidence. And curiously, the two of the stereotypes of atheists are 
uh, one that is the lawless criminal, and that the other one is that the academic elite is mm-hmm. typified by professor types or other people, the East Coast liberal elite types, which I find curious is that once you become an atheist again, you have a choice to right. either <laughs> knock off the local liquor store or go to graduate school and study you know, philosophy. Yep. Those are the only two choices. If there is no God, here. everything is permissible, even <laughs> becoming a philosopher. That, that's right. That's right. I wonder who they hate more. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Which one's more dangerous to society? I would say professors, but I'm biased on that. <laughs> this week on the show, we're excited to bring to you an interview with Edward Tabash. The interview is a little bit longer than we usually do them, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Edward Tabash is the current chair of the National Legal Committee of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, as well as chair for the Council for Secular Humanism's First Amendment Task Force. But Eddie's skill for debate extends far beyond the legal field. He was an official debater for numerous presidential campaigns, including those of Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, and he has taken on such world-famous Christian philosophers as William Lane Craig and Richard Swinburne. I expected to talk to Eddie about the legal rights of non-believers, but I got much more. Eddie shared his insights on apologetics, the nature of God, philosophy, science, postmodernism, the Constitution, and the views of our nation's founders. It was such fascinating stuff that it just seemed wrong to cut out any of it, so we left it all intact. But I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview as much as I did. You, I hear, are, uh, you actively debate on the issue of theism and non-theism, atheism? Yes, I do. Though I'm a lawyer by training and by profession, I engage Christian philosophers in technical debates on God's existence on college and university campuses around North America. Who are who are some of the people that you've talked to before? Anybody well, I have, recognize? yes, I got to debate William Lane Craig. I just recently debated Christian philosopher Doug Guyvet, hmm. and I debated one of the world's most respected Christian philosophers, Richard Swinburne. That's a pretty, uh, pretty decent uh, group of people there. Do you generally find that you're received well when you're debating in these contexts? I file I'm received well by the students because most of them have never heard the strength of the atheistic arguments before. Mm-hmm. And so this is the first time many of them hear technical, philosophical, and scientific reasons why God does not exist. And it does have an impact because so many kids in the United States today are brought up to believe that belief in God is the default, that it is the automatic platform from which to begin your existence, and to find that their most fundamental assumption is not basic, and that indeed their most fundamental presumption, their ultimate given, is not a given, but something subject to challenge, is quite startling for many of them. Um, What are some of the philosophical issues particularly that you like to focus on? Well, the ones that my opponents seem to emphasize the most are the argument from first cause, fine-tuning, and design. 
William Lane Craig has done the most amount of work on the first cause argument, and he has popularized the rebirth of an ancient Islamic argument called the Kalam cosmological argument, where everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, as we know, with the Big Bang, so it must have a cause. And he extrapolates from that that the cause could not itself also have a cause, or you have an infinite regression, so you have to stop at an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God. The problem with this is that if we accept the view that time and space began with the Big Bang, even though we don't know how the Big Bang came about, if time and space did not precede the Big Bang, we have no basis for dealing with cause and effect in a situation that doesn't have time and space as we understand it because causation occurs in a sequential manner where one thing causes another in time and space. So if there was no time and space or no predecessor time and space akin to our time and space, then it is not plausible to discuss causation in that way. So even though we don't know the constituent elements of the Big Bang, we certainly can surmise that the inference to the best explanation is that the universe did not have a cause, as we commonly understand cause, in terms of one thing operating on another in time and space. In addition to that, if God existed forever into the past then we have an infinite regress of an unexplained, all-powerful being, and it meant that ever, regardless of how far back in time you go, there never was a time when God did not know that what is now 15 billion years ago today, he would jumpstart the universe. Uh, another major problem, even though we don't yet know how the Big Bang came about, which makes a naturalistic alternative more plausible than a supernatural one, is how it could be that an incorporeal being can traverse the boundary between the immaterial and the material and affect things in space and time, let alone create space and time. If God has no corporeal attributes, how can something incorporeal affect the material. So these are the refutations of the Big Bang. There's also the multi-universe theory, plus some notion that time and space might have preceded the Big Bang in a certain way, but there's no way of knowing that there was time and space to allow for sequential causation. And if time and space preceded the Big Bang, how long did it exist before the Big Bang? Was there some pre-time time and pre-space space that just existed momentarily for something to play out? Uh, there's no way of knowing this. Then in the fine-tuning argument, they make the contention that the universe is so finely tuned and hangs on such a delicate balance that the alteration of any chemical or mo molecular structure would have made it unable for life to exist in this universe. Therefore, it took a supernatural intervention. Well, first of all, we don't have 
millions of life-denying universes to compare this one to. So it's not that remarkable because maybe all universes are life-affirming. And if this is the only one, it's not that remarkable. If I roll the dice and certain sequences come up, the chances of that particular sequence are very, very small. But that doesn't make the sequence remarkable. If I throw a vat of paint on the wall, the likelihood that every given blotch appeared indirectly, its position on that wall is an infinitesimally small percentage, but yet that's what happened. Uh, so we have nothing to compare this universe to. And then there is a conflict, as Victor Stenger points out in his book, God, the Failed Hypothesis, a potential collision course between the fine-tuning argument and the design argument, because the design argument says that the world shows such, the universe shows such a clockwork kind of design, it must have had a divine hand that created it. But if the universe is so well designed, then it shouldn't hang in the balance as the fine-tuning argument does. The fine-tuning argument leaves us with the impression that the universe balances so precariously that God had to do some immediate tinkering to keep it from collapsing in on itself after the Big Bang. Well, that's not that well designed. So you pick one or you pick the other. Uh, I would say that uh, fine-tuning, design, and first cause are their most formidable technical arguments, but they can be responded to. It seems like a lot of these arguments that you're discussing with them, they're wrapped up in these new scientific issues like the Big Bang and cosmology, but it's some of the same issues. A corporeal substance being moved or affected by an incorporeal substance, that goes all the way back to Descartes and problems with dualism that are, that are ancient. Is there anything new that's really coming out of these apologists other than just reworking the same types of arguments? It's an excellent question because those of us who debate on the atheistic side believe that it's all a reworking, but they believe on the other side it's actually a novel innovation. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, it reduces to semantics, but I believe that we can state with pretty strong confidence that the... Kalam cosmological argument as presented by William Lane Craig and others is really just a retread of the first cause argument, the old first cause argument. And the same with fine-tuning and design as sort of the souped-up versions of the teleological argument. So I don't see that they are different in type, but there are certainly efforts to elaborate mm -hmm. on the <clears throat> existing arguments, which have been refuted up to now. So these are new slants that are brought in. Now, another thing which they sometimes attempt to do is to argue that we need to disprove that God exists. <laughs> exactly. But in this case, absence of evidence is evidence of absence. If we scour the Loch Ness monster, uh, the Loch Ness 
in Scotland for this sea serpent and we don't find the sea serpent, people can say, well, you haven't proven it hasn't existed just because you can't find it. Well, we scoured the entire lake. It wasn't there. We don't have to scour the entire universe to know God is not there because God's supposed to be everywhere. So if someone said you have to reach a far corner of the universe in order to be able to say God is not there, that would be a defective argument because God is not supposed to be located in one individual space. God is supposed to be everywhere, which raises another problem, because if God is everywhere, could it be that God is in no particular place? And if God is in no particular place, does that mean that God can't even exist? And if God is everywhere, (laughs) is God's mind everywhere? Is there some kind of invisible brain cell that's everywhere? Is God in this recording studio right now? And if God is in the recording studio right now, is God's brain in the studio or just God's arm? And if God is nothing but pure mind, how does that mind permeate such a large universe? Is it the same mind everywhere? And what is the boundary between God's mind and other things? It seems whenever you try to actually put it in the terms that we use to understand the world that it becomes completely unintelligible with their attempt to shift the burden of proof on us. I sometimes think that's the most effective strategy that I've seen from a lot of apologists is to work with epistemology. To not start uh, using evidentialist claims and trying to argue from science but to somehow try to shift the understanding of how we know the world, to maybe claim that God is an axiom that we need to understand the world and and make it make sense, and somehow manipulate the epistemological side. You said earlier something about inference to the best explanation, and using that as a way of refuting some of these these apologists' arguments. Do they accept that? Uh, Well, they do, but they claim to do it their way, that that their premises regarding the first cause and fine-tuning and design are the inference of the best explanation. Uh, William Lane Craig, Doug Guyvet, Richard Swinburne, all of these Christian philosophers insist that a supernatural first cause is the consequence of an inference of the best explanation. (laughs) But, uh, But inference to the best explanation wouldn't explain all the evidence uh, by positing something that's even harder to understand. Exactly, exactly. But uh, now you spoke about people beginning with an epistemological axiomatic argument. These would be a different category of Christian philosopher that I've debated, the reformed or presuppositionalists. And one of my Which, earliest, by the way, their home is right here in Grand Rapids. <laughs> well, one of my earlier debates was against a presuppositionalist uh, reformed philosopher, Greg Bonson. And what these people insist on, and I think that Alvin Plantinga of Notre Dame is a major proponent of this, is that God can be known to properly exist without evidence. But why would that not mean Zeus? Why would that not mean Buddha? Why would that not mean 
any other thing. Or two gods. Right, or, or three gods or four right. gods. But to say that the triune god of Christianity can be known to exist without evidence is to completely explode <laughs> the epistemological basis upon which we arrive at any useful or verifiable knowledge. And I am chagrined that religion is so strong on our planet that people would actually put credence in such arguments. It just seems to me such a desperate way of trying to hold on to a deity. But to say that you can know the existence of an all-good, all-powerful, supernatural being, which being will send you to hell forever for not believing the right way, or which being condemned you to be destroyed before creating you and just created you to have you burn in hell forever, that you can know that without any evidence, I think it's is in itself a lack of evidence. Mm-hmm. I uh, attended a Christian college before I deconverted or while I deconverted. I would often enjoy sitting outside the philosophy classroom when it when it got out, and I would do my studying there and listen to the conversations. And while I, my whole life, in an evangelical background, heard people railing against postmodernism and relativism, I found that the evangelical philosophy students that were getting out saw something in it. They saw an opportunity, and the only... Th- reason I can place on my mind is that it is the only, it's not a very effective critique of modernism, but they're they're cousins in a sense because they both have the same agenda, which is demolishing the project of understanding the world through reason. Well, I think you raise a very profound point. And in more political terms, religious fundamentalism and postmodernism is an unholy alliance of the religious right and the academic left to destroy the empirical basis for knowing our world. For instance, I think that any scientific skeptic or empiricist must reject postmodernism. Postmodernism is essentially a fluffy kind of attempt to do an end run around what human experience has taught us. And also, it's replete with its own contradictions. The postmodernists, for instance, like to say that everything is relative and everything is is equal. And the postmodernists try to tell us that the witch doctor who jumps up and down with a rattle before a sick person is as valid a practitioner of medicine as a Western physician using antibiotics, and the lad, if we don't accept that, that we're racist. <laughs> well, the thing is, is if everything is relative, they can't cause a, call us racist because what they call racist could just be another form of what they call a narrative. And if there's no empirical basis, how do we build bridges? How do we fly airplanes? So if, for instance, somebody in indigenous culture puts together two pieces of bamboo and ties a string around it to say that that is inferior to get you somewhere than a jet airplane. There's an empirical basis for that. If we follow postmodernism through to its logical conclusions, we can't know anything, and all of our empirical-based knowledge is false. 
So the distance between Los Angeles and Grand Rapids will depend on what ethnicity or what <laughs> gender you are. And that is as preposterous as saying there's a supernatural being who will punish you forever for not believing in Jesus. So it is the task of the atheist, secular humanist, scientific skeptic to challenge the non-empirical assertions that would destroy the scientific method, whether they come from right-wing religious ideologues or left-wing postmodernist ideologues. I agree 100%, but I'm, I'm wondering how we might do that because us who defend science, uh, we're bound by the intellectual humility that comes with it. A lot of times we are very reflective and have to admit that our conclusions are tentative, that cultural and other biases can enter into particular judgments. We have to articulate our position with a little bit of nuance, whereas either the postmodernist on the left or the religious fundamentalist can rally a lot of passion and morally loaded terminology. Even if postmodernism really does discredit or, or eliminate the foundation for compassion and tolerance, which I think it does, uh, how do we express that nuance? How do we get people to start thinking like a scientist, start thinking with that method? We have to do so with common, everyday, homey examples, building bridges, flying airplanes. The postmodernist and the religious fundamentalist do not rely on some relative concepts to get the car to start in the morning. Exactly. And so we have to begin from the basics. We live in an empirically based society. We live in an empirically based world on an empirically based planet where all progress has come through an empirical reflection upon what experience has shown us. And so with the empirical method so workable in so many areas, it itself is the basis for knowing what's true and what's not. In a recent debate, Professor Doug Guyvet said that I can't use the scientific method to justify the scientific method, and I said, yes, I can, because if indeed the scientific method is a valid basis for empirically established something, it can also establish itself. There's no reason for it not to be able to. <coughs> so he was trying to leap into a presuppositionless foundation saying you can't use empiricism to establish empiricism. I believe you can use empiricism to establish empiricism because if empiricism shows that empiricism is true, then you've got it. Nothing is a faith basis if it has an empirical foundation. We don't make a god out of any process, what we do is we follow the evidence. If the evidence shows induction works in a certain category, then we follow inductive reasoning. If it shows that it doesn't work in a certain area, then we would abandon it. But as long as we stick to the empirical method, I don't think we can go wrong. Because empiricism happens to be the way by which we know that the sun will come up tomorrow morning. Empiricism is the way to know that if you stop breathing for five minutes, you'll be in very bad shape. Empiricism is the way to know 
that if someone is denied food for lengthy periods of time, they'll starve. Empiricism is the way to know all of this. Empiricism is the way to know that if you put something in the fire, it'll burn unless it's an inflammable substance. The empirical method is not violated by its own use to ascertain what works and what doesn't work. And I think that we have every right to invoke this. And if, for instance, certain methods of analysis don't work, the empirical method will yield to us the truth that those methods don't work. Mm -hmm. The basis that we're that empiricists are, are putting their beliefs on are things that we all have to accept. Nobody can reject induction. Nobody can in, in reject empirical truth. They wouldn't get in arguments if they didn't believe in these things were really true. Nobody could reject the axioms of logic uh, because to try to refute them, um, you would have to evoke those axioms. Those are things that we have to take as a, as a bare minimum for truth. What a lot of postmodernists are doing and what a lot of Christian apologists like the presuppositionalists are doing is they're trying to just stick something that they can't justify as the foundation for their beliefs. It's even more serious than that. You're right. They're trying to stick something they can't justify as the foundation for their beliefs. But the way they try to justify it is through an a priori approach where an a priori approach is not valid. You can't say, for instance, that with no experience we know the precise being that created the universe and what that being will do to us if we don't worship it in the right way. So they're not applying the a priori to a realm in which the a priori is appropriate. And that's a very dangerous uh, way of trying to get at knowledge. And to me, at the end of the day, that is nothing more than a reflection on the desperation to which religionists will go to try to establish a factual basis for their belief systems. Well said. So I know that you are going uh, around the country right now talking to people about the religious right and their, the threat they pose to our modern freedoms. So I, I have a personal question for you. Uh, I, I am atheist. I don't believe in God. Uh, and I sometimes worry about my job because I am a teacher and I teach college students and I sometimes, uh, some of my classes deal with religious topics. And I've had plenty of support from all the faculty, I've never had a problem with any of the students because I think I'm very fair-minded uh, about how I approach these issues. Uh, but I am nervous all the time that somebody might say something and that, and that my job in some way might be threatened or I might, thought, I might be thought that I'm not appropriate for that uh, capacity teaching a religion class, for example. Am I exaggerating? Am I making a bigger deal of this? Uh, no, you're not because of what could be coming. We stand on the threshold of two possible futures. One future is one in which we will continue as an officially secular society where believer and non-believer are equal. 
The other future that would be precipitated by a change of just one vote on the Supreme Court is a future in which government bodies would be able to favor religion generally over non-belief. Once we non-believers are shunted off into second-class citizenship, anything goes in terms of the level of oppression that could be thrown our way. So because church-state separation, the proper interpretation of the First Amendment, that government must be neutral in matters of religion, and that all citizens are equal before the law, irrespective of their views on religion, if that changes by a shift of even one vote on the Supreme Court, which is all it would take right now, then government bodies would be able to favor the religious believers collectively over non-believers. Now, whether they'd be able to fire a teacher, because there's also First Amendment free speech rights, is a separate question. But certainly, your concern that a revised Supreme Court would no, no longer insist on a definitive equality between believer and non-believer, which means your job could be affected, is well-founded. People don't realize this, but during the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the House in Congress, not the Senate, the House voted to deprive atheists of protection from employment discrimination. It was only the Senate that restored that. Now, when was I, this? In 1964. Now, I would have hoped that had it passed both houses of Congress, the United States Supreme Court would have struck it down as an unconstitutional establishment of religion to say that we, the Congress of the United States, will allow discrimination against atheists but against no one else. However, in order for that to be true, we need the ongoing line of Supreme Court cases beginning in 1947, which say no branch of government can treat the believer and non-believer differently. What is really the degree of the, of the threat? I hear uh, stuff about kids getting kicked out of Boy Scouts or God in the Pledge. Are the threats against non-believers, are they really that serious? Or Even they... more serious, because it's not just a threat against the non-believer. It's a threat against our modern freedoms that we take for granted as an integral component of our current society. It would mean that women would not only lose the right of abortion, they could lose the right of birth control. Couples married to each other could lose the right of birth control because the religious right has claimed that the 1965 Supreme Court case that struck down a ban on contraception even between married couples is unconstitutional. It has no basis in the Constitution. It would mean access to contraception could be denied. It would mean that our entire educational system would be dumbed down so that a religious notion would be equal with the scientific theory of evolution. It is already meaning that our scientific competitiveness in the brave new world of biotechnologies is gravely threatened because of the ban on stem cell research imposed by a religious right-wing president. It means rampant censorship. It means coercive prayer in the public schools. It means the shunning 
of the non-believer by society, this time backed up by the law. It means the continued actual persecution of gays and lesbians just for loving each other. So these are just some of the areas where a repeal of church-state separation would open the floodgates for a theocracy. How close are we to that theocracy? One vote away on the United States Supreme Court. Right now, there are five justices who say no branch of government can favor the believer over the non-believer, and they just need one more, and that entire perspective will shift so that a new Supreme Court majority will say all branches of government may favor religion generally over non-belief. We, are, we hang by the thread of one vote on the Supreme Court. Wasn't our Constitution supposed to protect us from this? I, I, I just don't understand how they are allowed to be doing this. <laughs> why, why nobody is stopping them? The Constitution says only what a majority of justices say it says at any moment in our history. So if at least five justices from 1947 onward have said that the First Amendment means no branch of government can favor the believer over the non-believer. And then a new majority will say that was wrong. Government can now favor the believer generally over the non-believer. There's nothing we can do about it. The Constitution means no more than a minimum number of five justices say it means in any given case, at any given moment in time. That's the reality of the system. Okay. Activist judges. What kind of guidance can we get from the founders? Enormous. It is remarkable the degree to which they have left us a record showing they intended government neutrality in matters of religion. Madison, the principal author of the First Amendment, who was guided more by Thomas Jefferson than by anyone else, had opposed aid to all religions even years before drafting the First Amendment. Jefferson, his closest ally, uh, wrote in 1821 that Madison in 1786 had to fight off in the Bill for Religious Freedom in Virginia an attempt to make it apply only to Christians, and Jefferson was delighted that his bill that he jointly introduced with Madison protected, quote, the infidel of all religions. Madison even opposed religious institutions holding property. Jefferson and Madison refused to declare days of thanksgiving while they were in office. No one else would do that, ever, not even today. Madison succumbed only during the War of 1812 and later admitted it was a mistake. So uh, Jefferson once wrote, and Jefferson again was Madison's closest ally uh, in church-state separation, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And then also, during the deliberations from June through September of 1789, when Congress was crafting the First Amendment, there was overwhelming evidence that the intent was a government that was neutral between believer and non-believer and the most stirring example of this was on September 3rd, 1789, when the Senate was deliberating what was to become the First Amendment. And on two occasions that day, they rejected proposed language which would have confined the First Amendment to just preventing government from favoring one denomination over others. 
And so by rejecting language that would have just done that, resulting in the ultimate language being broader than any prior proposal, no law even respecting an establishment of religion, we have clear evidence that the founders intentionally, and we see this through the path, the trajectory of the First Amendment, designed our government so that believers and non-believers are equal before the law, or as Justice O'Connor so appropriately put it, that no one, no branch of government can treat anyone differently based upon the God or gods they worship or don't worship. So when we're taking the Ten Commandments uh, uh, monuments out of courthouses and getting rid of nativity scenes, uh, people are talking about this like it's radical secularism that they're imposing, but not even granting a Thanksgiving Day (laughs) sounds pretty radical. Well, the removal of symbols of religion is not radical because if government is supposed to be a naked public square, government is supposed to be devoid of religious trappings, then we have no choice but to keep these symbols away because government is not supposed to be the display case for religious doctrine. Government is supposed to be neutral. And so removing the nativity scenes, removing the Ten Commandments, unless we're going to just have the commandments without the religious injunctions in them. But what business does government have to display a work that says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's not neutral in matters of religion. Some of our founders felt this way. Um, It certainly doesn't seem like our current politicians feel this way. I really had a difficult time watching several of the Democratic uh, candidates for president in a debate tripping over themselves to affirm how religious they are and how focal, such a focal point uh, religion will play in their presidency. Uh, There's a trick there. The trick is this. All of the Democrats running for president will give us the right judges on the Supreme Court. That's all we need from them. But to get elected in this overwhelmingly, simplistically religious America, they need to say these things to get there. The best example was in 1992, candidate Clinton said that the United States Supreme Court decision that banned nonsectarian prayer at high school graduations went too far. What did President Clinton do? He gave us two justices on the Supreme Court who would and have upheld that very same decision. Had Bush Sr. been reelected in 92 and replaced those two vacancies, we would no longer have church-state separation. There is no necessity that if you don't believe in God, you're left-wing on every issue. But It just so happens every Democrat running would give us the right judges. Every Republican judges would give us the wrong judges for church-state separation. Even Rudy Giuliani has promised the Christian right wing that he would give them the judges they want. So from the standpoint of church-state separation, only any of the Democrats running can be trusted to give us the right judges. Let's take even... A few years ago, the vice presidential nominee and then later on presidential candidate, Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut, a very, very observant Orthodox Jew who kept talking about religion in a very disgusting fashion, and yet he had 100% rating for the National Abortion Rights Action League. 
So we have to be indulgent of what a church-state separationist has to say to the American people in order to first get to the White House so that this particular politician can then save church-state separation with the right Supreme Court appointees. So we have to we have to play the game to some deal. But yes, we have. Are, to. Aren't the uh, aren't certain Republican candidates trying to distance themselves from from fundamentalism? None, no. And if they are, they're apologetic about it. But the important thing is that none of the Republican candidates are distancing themselves from who they would put on the Supreme Court. Hmm. And since the Supreme Court is the sole determining factor in whether we ultimately have church-state separation or whether we sink into a theocracy, the litmus test for atheists, agnostic, free thinkers, secular humanists, religious dissenters, and for church-state separationists, the 2008 presidential election should be seen as nothing more than a referendum on the Supreme Court. So I guess we need to get out there and vote. Uh, thank you, Edward Tabash, for joining us on the program. Thank you. Well, that's going to be a wrap for today's episode. We're just getting this show off the ground. We would really like your support. If you can, please get on iTunes and write a review if you like this show. We're trying to spread the word. We're not doing this for any profit or anything else but a cause. Comments and questions are always welcome. <laughs> yes. In fact, the more outlandish and flagrant they are, the more likely we are to put you on the Absolutely. air. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's right. So please, send us your challenges, too. We want to... Uh, we want to hear from people who disagree with us. We want a chance for you guys to enter into the debate. So enjoy, and until next week. For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, go to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. 